the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, joined as always by Ian Simpkins. Happy Friday, my man. Thanks, man. It's good that it's finally the end of the week, and uh, hopefully all of you out there listening have big plans for your weekend. You can always follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, Online, you can find old shows of ours at 1160hope.com, and you could always download the podcast wherever it is uh, that you get your podcast. Ian, sometimes we start lighthearted, other times we don't, and we're going to just jump right into it right now uh, because this week, last week, it feels like increasingly, uh, especially for followers of Jesus, this issue of abortion in our country uh, is so hard and it's so sad. Like there's nothing in my life, I don't know about you, but when I watch TV, there's nothing that boils my blood more and gets me more passionate uh, than hearing about abortion. And this week, the Senate, again, in my view, kind of went to new lengths uh, of, of craziness when the Senate failed to pass a bill protecting infants that survive abortion. So uh, t- give me some of your thoughts on this. Well, the bill simply states this, that if an abortion results in the live birth of an infant, the infant is a legal person for all purposes under the laws of the United States and entitled to all the protections of such laws. So that was kind of the general uh, right. sense, you know, the kind of the thesis of the bill, um, and it did not pass. So apparently there's a long history. I didn't realize how much controversy about this particular bill has existed for as long as it has. And again, you know, I've said this before, I try to be level-headed yeah. when it comes to some of these conversations, knowing full well I have friends on multiple sides of the coin on this discussion, politically, religiously, philosophically, uh, this is a really, really tough one for me to get my head around. Yes, it is. The protected rights of a child that somehow, like dare I even say miraculously survived an abortion attempt? Is that even what you call it? Yeah, an abortion know. attempt? Yeah. Uh, is denied the rights to even receive base-level care. In fact, I think doctors that attempt to give care to a baby that survives abortion is uh, is likely to be prosecuted yeah it's it's so tragic and i get on the other end they're talking about when the baby has life-threatening this or that but this bill literally um was just covering babies that could that could live and and saying that no they they are not protected yet and it just doesn't make any sense to me none of it makes much sense to me to be honest with you like even a baby in the womb seems to me to be a a human and a being but outside the womb I, i don't understand how you could even make that differentiation that uh 
that that is not a child worthy of rights and worthy of the most basic right of being allowed to live. And, and it just really – so two things come to mind for me. You know, on Thursday's show, we talked about uh, that cool story you shared about that baby, the tiniest baby ever, right, that uh-huh. was born uh, and has now gone home and survived. Like if, if we are now medically to the point where babies at that size born that early – uh, I think it was like 24 weeks. It was like under a yeah. pound or something can right. survive. Yeah. Like how can we, uh, well, you know, heaven help us as a culture yep. if, if we're killing babies that are bigger than that even in the womb. And now we're talking of out of the womb. Like, yep. like what is happening to us as a people? And how is it like a controversial conservative stance even to say that a baby um, should have the rights of a living being is beyond me that this is even debatable. Now, there's a couple of things, too, that kind of blow my mind. There are currently 19 states which afford no protection to abortion survivors at all. Between 2003 and 2014 alone, at least 143 babies died after being born alive. Mm. And in 2018, in Florida alone, 16 infants were born alive after surviving abortion attempts. So... Um, Again, I'm going to show some of my ignorance. I didn't even realize yeah. um, this many states offer no protections. How many babies died after being born alive? Like this is all honest, honest to God, like new territory for me. And that's probably part of what's contributing to some of my shock. Like how how is this even a debate? I'm imagining it has to be financially motivated maybe, mm-hmm. right? To, to care for a child after an abortion attempt costs money. Like is that the root of what we're talking about? Uh, it's I don't even know, to be honest with you. We we should probably in the coming weeks get somebody on who could shed some light on this. But uh, there's got to be the financial. There's got to be when you've made the decision to have an abortion and they and they botch it. Uh, go well, I'd like you know to do what I had already planned to do. It, it just doesn't. It also speaks to our to our government, right? Hmm. Like it says here that polling indicates that the vast majority of Americans oppose the killing of children who survive abortions. The vast majority, however, the pro-abortion legislators in Congress have largely been deaf to public opinion on this issue. So there's something about our politics that's outpacing or that's going further than even the people want to. Right. And, man, the whole industry and the whole thing about abortion just makes me so sad. And it makes me – like this has to be a hill for the the church to die on and – I guess I want to spin it in that direction for you pastorally. What do you think is the church's response? What does the church need to do uh, in light of the growing um, latitude that abortion is having within our culture, in your opinion? I, I don't know. Mm. I really, uh, I'm just, I mean, reading the rest of the story, um, realizing that this is, I think it's a different discussion to talk about um, abstinence only education versus yep, contraceptives. Yep. I, I honestly think who we fund or defund, even that's, probably even a different discussion for me this is right at the heart of a sanctity of life discussion yes. period like that to me e- even just the idea of a hill to die on feels too passive to me okay. like the church for me um big c church mm-hmm. i'm not talking denominations i'm not talking political affiliations i'm, I'm not even talking regions or geography to, to say uh life matters all life matters um obviously throughout the course of history Certain lives have certainly been elevated over others, and I'm not just talking about this topic, certainly race and gender, and that's still something at a global level that we face and that we are far from, uh, I think, really achieving uh, well. But I I think, gosh, for the the church to not only say to outright identify um, 
what is like it's heartbreaking to, to read these statistics and in these reports and to also say okay we're going to also step up in a profoundly aggressive sense to do a better job of caring yes. for at-risk and single mamas to start adopting some babies to say okay we, we can't just simply um yell louder that mm-hmm. this is an issue that concerns us we got to start just being frank, moving money around yep. to care for the people that um, are the ones that are central to these narratives to 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 give people handles and spaces for this conversation in a way that's uh, helpful and to outright call what isn't of God what it is. And yep. um, that's a really – that's an unpopular thing to do. And literally our show is called The Common Good and we mm-hmm. focus a lot on let's find common ground here. And, and yet at times I think our um, – our, our tradition requires of us to stand, even and especially when it's unpopular, saying that's just not right. And yeah. and and while uh, while we have breath in our lungs, we we need to be a people that um, have the courage, I think, to proclaim that. Mm, I appreciate your words on that, man. I it does make me so sad. I know even in our small church, there are multiple people waiting to adopt babies. Yeah, right. And it, the it, the solution to this seems so clear and. Um, it's just a broken world that we live in, and I think you just said it great. As long as we have breath in our lungs, uh, we need to be saying something. So yeah. a heavy topic to start today, but one that, that followers of Jesus and non-followers of Jesus need to really think about uh, and take seriously. Well, we're off and running on this Friday on The Common Good. Coming up next, uh, we're going to talk about a great blog post from Carrie Newhoff. Uh, kind of his thoughts on why mega, mega church pastors keep falling, why it keeps happening. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, along with Ian Simpkins. You can follow us and keep up with us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Or online at 1160hope.com. Happy Friday, man. Enjoying our Friday so far, although uh, we're like a broken record. Friday's just bring us into the weekend as pastors of stress. It's <laughs> true. Like that. It's good. Though. I can still enjoy it. I can still appreciate Friday. Well, as two pastors, we read an art- a blog this week from, how do you say his name? Carrie Newhoff? Carrie Newhoff, yep. I'd encourage you guys all out there to go to carrynewhoff.com. Uh, he's a pastor. He's a speaker. He's a writer. And he really writes some good, thoughtful blogs, has a really good podcast, all sorts of uh, good stuff about the church that uh, that is uh, we are particularly interested in. Uh, and he wrote a blog the other day called this, Some Thoughts on Why Mega Church Pastors Keep Falling. Yeah. And, and I got I saw this, and I was like, I'm in. I'm in. Because as you and I have said, we keep talking about Harvest and James McDonald. We keep talking about Willow and Bill Hybels. But then, you know, it's spread out across the country, right? Whether it be Darren Patrick in St. Louis, yeah. Mark, Dris- Mark Driscoll in Seattle, Perry Noble out in South Carolina. And that's just the ones that we know about. But Mega church pastors seem to be within the last couple of years just falling at a fast, fast rate. Yeah, and so it felt like the '90s and in the early 2000s there was this this glor this glorifying of mega churches and therefore mega church pastors, and now that seems to be crumbling a little bit. Um, and so his article here, his uh, his blog, he says uh, this isn't an easy post to write nor a glib one, and then he goes in on why he thinks. Um, the mega church pastors are falling. And as I read this, I had, you know, a couple of weeks ago when you were out uh, with the baby, uh, Sky Jatani was here and Sky says this often. He says, uh, the systems you've created are perfect for, <laughs> for producing the results that mm. you've set out. I just butchered that, but you get the point. Like, <laughs> basically 
what we've set up here is now bearing the fruit that we should have always seen coming. Mm. Mm. Uh, these kind of celebrity mega church pastors falling. So I'm curious, as you made your way through this blog, it's a really long one, but I'd encourage people to look at it at kerryneuhoff.com. Uh, what'd you think about what he said? Well, the, so the reason that I suggested this particular blog, because a number of people have written, I think really intelligently, to be honest, about some of the stuff that we've seen, especially in Chicagoland the last year, um, a couple of things. Kerry is, uh, has spoken at our church before, so I've had a chance to to meet him and just know his heart a little bit. Um, but secondly, Kind of the posture that he assumes to me, I so I still appreciate because he says, you read, you know, this isn't an easy post to write. Later he says, please hear me. I write this with a heavy heart and after a lot of reflection, introspection, and prayerful consideration. He also says, like, what I'm about to write might not even be accurate. <laughs> I'm not casting stones. Yep. Like he, It's like three pages of caveats before he goes into it, which uh, to me shows just a lot of pastoral wisdom, a lot of insight. He, he wrote years ago about the exit of two other megachurch pastors, and uh, he said, I, th- I think these observations from that post are still true. He said, most pastors aren't fake. The struggle is real. It's hard to lead anything. God uses broken people. Even if all this is true, uh, why, why we all fail, though? And here's some thoughts, some new thoughts um, for things that he looks uh, kind of at the infrastructure and also things that he's kind of hoping for the future. And uh, I just think he provides some really good pastoral wisdom and leadership so his uh his his first note here is that it it just got bigger than I could handle. Yeah. He says, please hear me in this. Leading something large is not inherently bad. Although I hear the argument all the time, I personally don't believe that there's anything inherently bad about a large church or a large organization, but there is something inherently difficult in it. And to some extent, the larger something is, the harder it is. Yeah. And that makes sense to me. Like I totally understand the the complexities of leading something large. Well, I'm curious, not to put you on the spot, but you lead at what where we live kind of in the western suburbs is yeah. one of the mega churches of the area yeah uh, community christian church the yellow box in naperville yep. uh, is one of the flagship churches it is one of the biggest churches in the area uh so when he says leading big is hard and you see um, maybe just to put you on the spot when you see mega church pastors falling all over the place what are the does that a does that scare you and B, what are some of the systems you guys have put into place to be different to, to, so that's not the case? Yeah, it doesn't scare me, um, but I do know, we've talked about this on previous shows, that the temptation uh, to isolate, yeah. to uh, to keep people out of the loop, to you know, the, to maintain power, to hold on to influence. I think all of those are very real. Um, but I also know, that, like at the Yellow Box, you know, we there's just an excellent team there at the Yellow Box, but there's also an excellent team that oversees the whole church and nobody's perfect yeah. at all. But there is like, I, you know, realizing that when I started the yellow box, um, that things were going to shift from what I was used to just simply because of the size. So yep. like, uh, my expectations were narrowed, but intensified is what I often mm-hmm. say. Um, so there was, you know, leading a church of 300, you know, sometimes I was the janitor. Sometimes yep, yep. I, I was the social media manager. And, uh, so there certainly was an intensifying and a narrowing of expectations and role and scope to kind of hone in on, couple of things rather than a whole lot, um, which can sometimes create silos because you have a whole team of people who are really, really excellent at what they do. Yeah. And I, I mean that fully, like the people that lead students and kids and arts. And I, I mean, they're, they're amazing. Um, but it does require though, I think, uh, intentional effort, not only just socially to make sure that we're actually in each other's lives, yeah. doing life together. Like our staff meetings are really intentionally relational. We spend a lot of time just celebrating wins, um, bragging on other people like 
that's the bulk of those meetings. It ha- it actually is in those spaces. It's very little about bullet points and calendars. We can deal with that in emails. It's about making sure that we remember, like, oh man, we're in this together. Yeah, that's good. And in a weird way, that does kind of safeguard against these like patterns and streams of like isolating, and you're off in your own corners. It, and it also creates intimacy and welfare. Like, oh, that's right. Even though maybe I'm not on the small groups team, like their success is my success, yep. and we're about you know our our mission is helping people find their way back to God. And we're better at that when we do that together. So yeah. it, it is sort of this kind of constant family meeting mentality. Like, Hey, we, we don't need to be hiding stuff from each other. Like we're better when we do this thing together Absolutely. and to keep that at the forefront of how we organize and how we meet and how our rhythms are set up has been, I, I think massively important. That's good. That's good. He speaks, Newhoff speaks in here about uh, a pedestal and a platform being two different things. And that when we put our pastors up on pedestals, when it's one guy or girl, yeah, they are bound to fail. He also says he created a world where nobody challenged them. That's where that's what you're talking about right there. Yes, like right. If you're in a church right now where nobody can challenge the pastor and nobody knows the pastor, that pastor is going to fall. Totally. I promise you. Well, and that's and that's the other thing too. Like a, a lot of intentional structures have been put in place so that there it isn't built around some celebrity pastor either. That's what I really love about, you know, Dave and John for 30 years have kind of made that a priority that like hey, we're not going to build a a church or a mission organization around like our faces or our personality. Yes. They're both very charismatic. I think they're both really, really uh, like brilliant gifted church planners, but there's, you know, cities that we have, we have campuses in the city and in the suburbs. Yep. And um, there, there's a lot of love for the local leadership too. Yep. It's not built around like, Oh man, this is so-and-so celebrity pastors church. Like, no, this is my pastor. This is my worship pastor. Yep. And uh, I think, you know, Dave wrote a book called hero maker. That's really kind of all about, it's not about being the hero of the story. It's about who you're raising up yeah. uh, to further the the Jesus mission in the world. And that that is, unfortunately, I think, um, a pretty rare posture, it yeah, seems, it really particularly is. in the Western church. But it sets that church up for good fruit and for totally. sustaining. I, I think of when we had Mark Job to talk, he set up the exact same system, right? Mm. It's not about Mark Job, but he's, right. the, he's the leader of this organization that's spitting churches out. Yes. And uh, it's never going to get huge because he can't. He doesn't desire it to be. Right. The totally. Ferguson's are kind of the same way. Absolutely. Man, I resonate with number three, too, here. Just I stayed too long mm. and that that sets you up. That's powerful. Like sometimes there's a beginning and an end to uh, when a pastor uh, needs to come and go or just when a, when a church just needs to change. Yeah, It right. just needs to change. And then he says last, somewhere along, along the way, I lost my soul. Mm. Um, you know, I think you and I as pastors, and I would encourage people to look at this um, – this blog post, but somewhere along the way as pastors, you know, uh, it can get dangerous. And so most people out listening to us aren't pastors, but you're probably in churches. And I would encourage you, if you see some of these warning signs in your organization or your pastor, probably have the guts to bring them up. Um, but also be praying for your pastor because the whole, I think, and you could tell me if you think I'm right really quickly about this. I think the age of the celebrity pastor is dying. Uh, and I hope, uh, maybe I hope the age of the celebrity pastor is dying, and, and they're out of that rubble, something good is going to grow. Yeah, I, I am not sure I'm as convinced, but yeah. I think it actually is going to require a lot more intentionality. I don't think it's going to disappear on its own. I think it's yes. going to require some some proactiveness from the church to actually see some of that dismantled a little bit. Well, unfortunately, what we've seen is this is something that's going to come up more and more and more often. And so we'll continue this conversation. Well, you're listening to The Common Good on AIM 1160. Coming up next, uh, where is, when do is it, what do we mean when we tell people that God is good? When is it appropriate to tell people that God is good? And when is that difficult to say? We're going to wrestle with that coming up next on The Common Good on AIM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good on AIM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, along with Ian Simpkins. You can find us online at 1160hope.com. There you'll find old shows. Uh, soon, we're, maybe we'll be selling swag. Maybe we, you and I got some swag here. We got some mugs with our names on them. Oh, I thought you were going to leave them in suspense. Just tell them we have swag, but not tell them what it is. Oh, or maybe we don't have mugs. Ooh, <laughs> nice recovery. Well done. <laughs> maybe we don't. Uh, you can also follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. And uh, please like our podcasts wherever it is uh, you can subscribe uh, to podcasts. Ian, a little left turn here. Uh, we like to say we're not radio professionals, so every time, every now and then we just make a left turn. You and I were talking uh, during the break, this blog that we were just discussing from Carrie Newhoff about why megachurch pastors keep falling, which I think is such an important topic right now. Yep. Why? Because megachurch pastors keep falling. Totally. And mega churches keep going through the same issues. And you and I kept, after the break, it felt like we rushed the ending of this and yep. we want to kind of sit in it a little more. So uh, we're going to do that in this segment. Um, why don't you pick us up where we left off? Where What is the next good one you want to talk about, about some of the reasons why mega church pastors fall? Parenthetically, I'd also say some of these are also just the reasons people fall. Yeah, totally. uh, And these guys are celebrities and they're not immune to it. In fact, maybe more susceptible to it. What's... Pick us up. Well, the one that we were just talking about was the first one that he gives. It just got bigger than I could handle. And uh, the line that really stood out to me is that sometimes our platform grows faster than our character. Mm. And that just that just really like a light bulb for me. When you're plat- and that like you were just saying, that it's doesn't really just good. apply to pastors or church leaders. That in a lot of environments, sometimes our platform grows faster than our character. And that's something to be mindful of. And he says just a couple of things. First, your platform isn't yours. It's God. Second, you don't have a ministry. God does. Third, your life isn't your own. Are you allowing God's spirit to loosen your grip on your own life? And realizing those things, he's saying, just as a pastor who has a big platform in a number of different streams, he's saying, the more that I remember those things, the healthier that I am. Now, they're not catch-all, but he's saying when things get big, when they're too big for me to control, remembering that my platform isn't mine, that I don't have a ministry, but God does, that my life isn't my own. I just thought those were such helpful kind of landing places for this first one about something just getting too big to kind of maybe even write those down, put them on your laptop, make mm. sure you're seeing those things regularly. The second thing that he said, though, that I think we've both alluded to is he said, I created a world where nobody challenged me. And he said the first line, let's be honest, nobody likes critics, which I, we have both conceded. It, I don't think people like criticism, and it makes sense then why we run from it. Some people maybe more proactively than others, but I thought there was so much truth in just admitting um, okay, we don't like criticism, but it's absolutely necessary to allow people to actually say no. So he's saying, mm. I created a world where no one challenged me, which means he's taking some ownership. It wasn't just no one challenged me. It's, nope, I created a system. I created a world, an infrastructure, where pe- people didn't feel safe to challenge me. And so it's easy, I think, to step back and say, hey, no one corrected me. No one <laughs> no one spoke up. And you're like, yeah. okay, but do you lead predominantly out of a posture of fear? Like, mm. have you created channels and safety nets where people can feel safe to actually voice these things? Because if so, um, leader, that's on you. Yeah. And and I I appreciated him owning that, not just saying, hey, no, no one corrected me. That was yep. the problem. It was, nope. Um, consciously or subconsciously, I think, often we'll create systems and patterns and structures that deter, that discourage feedback Yes, and uh, to be mindful of where we develop those things. That's been one of the most telling things for me as I've been doing all this reading about Harvest and then before that Willow. Uh, it just bluntly, and I'm not there, so some people could think I'm wrong about this, but from a distance, it looks like there were very few avenues 
for people yeah. high up in the organization yes. even right. to challenge James McDonald and to challenge Bill Hybels to call out issues that they saw because if they did, their job was in peril and that these guys got kind of isolated to the ability to do whatever they wanted. And with that power comes, uh, you know, that you could be getting drunk with that power. Yeah. Totally. And I don't think either of those guys started churches going, you know what, I'm going to do that. But it just happens over totally. time. And the only way to stop that is uh, through accountability, through people, uh, channels where honesty can be spoken uh, and those types of things. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a huge one. Well, one of the things, too, he says, and this feels almost like unattainable, but I think it's so good. He's talking about the people who will be honest with you, keep them close, welcome their feedback. And then he said the way to cultivate that is to thank those on-mission people every time they critique you. Mm-hmm. Welcome it. Tell them how much it helped you. And I'm trying to think of even my own heart when someone honestly um, and even in love comes after me about something I'm doing that's not right. Thanking them is the hardest thing in the universe in that moment. But like he makes a great point, though, that that is what begins to establish a culture that says, nope, you can shoot Ian straight because he actually recognizes, even if he disagrees with it, that it's helpful in some way. Yeah, yeah. Number four is the big one. Number three, we touched on already. Um, sometimes pastors just stay too long, yeah. and it's, they, yeah. they need to understand the church isn't all about them. But number four, somewhere along the way, I lost my soul, and yep. this is a big one because I think it's true for pastors and non-pastors. Um, you, you all, We all get into this job because we want to see the mission of Jesus move forward. We want to see people um, come to Christ and grow in Christ. But it says here, somewhere along the way, it's too easy to lose your soul. How exactly does that happen? Well, it's a subtle art. Yeah. Most leaders who sell their souls aren't 100% on the right track one day and the next day wake up in someone else's bed. It just doesn't work that way. Mm. Selling your soul starts with small compromise. Oh, that's good. And, man, this is enormous. This is true for all sin in all ever, all of our lives. You all need to hear that. That You know, you're not going to go from, like, uh, the mountaintop, I'm holy, I'm this and that. Tomorrow, I'm I'm in an affair. Yeah. Like those things build, and totally. This is why the Bible talks about cutting out sin in your life and, and taking sin down to its root issue. I think this is an enormous one for pastors and everybody. Totally, he says. I, I need to become an expert at noticing the little compromises. Yes, right. It's it's. Uh, I think I heard Matt Chandler talk about the way that we relate to sin. Often, when the Bible tells us to put it to death, we like to give it a chain and teach it to do tricks. He said, stop teaching to do tricks, what we're instructed to put to death. That's big wow. sin, small sin, everything in between. And I found that really convicting. The idea, the invitation, the challenge isn't to train sin, to put it in a class, to put huh. it to death, right? And uh, it's like when you watch, you know, like this show, like When Animals Attack, you know, people that have lions as pets and then it attacks and everyone's like, can you believe it? I'm like, yeah, I can totally believe it. That's what a lion that's does, a lion's right? That's supposed to and do. And we do the same thing with sin when we don't notice the small compromises. Yeah. I think that that is like a sleeping giant. And number five, he says, I invested too little time at home, which is such an interesting one because you, you no don't. kidding. Most people would say, how does that matter with being a pastor or whatever? And the for many reasons, that's where your true ministry is calling. That's where you, but it's also where you're most truly yourself, right? Yes. Like yeah. my wife is not very impressed. <laughs> by me. And I'm not in a mega church, but right. think about even these mega church pastors. Chances are that they got married to their wife well before they were a mega church pastor. Yep. So who's going to tell us the truth? Who's yep. going to do that? It's it's people at home. Well, and that's and he says this, I think it's right on the nose. You can avoid the hard conversations at home by staying later and working mm. longer and he says, here's the truth. You you can have a great ministry and a bad marriage. A bad marriage will eventually undermine a great ministry. That's good. And I think that's important to remember that those stakes are, I mean, that is your first ministry, your first priority. 
And he sort of, he sort of lands the plane offering a couple of rules. He says, one, financial integrity, two, sexual integrity, three, respect for local churches, and four, uh, a commitment to accuracy in reporting. Mm. Um, and he kind of drew those from the Billy Graham Association and how, how he sort of led his church and movement. And I think at the very least, those are great, great starting points for leading with integrity yep. and uh, hopefully reversing this trend of seeing pastors of big and small churches continuing to fall and walk away. Because it's so, it just damages the name of Jesus Christ, right? Totally. When, when pastors fall. Uh, and the bigger the church, the bigger the pastor, the bigger the damage, but it's yeah. still damaged all the way across the board. Totally. And you and I have such a passion for the church. Um, That's right. You know, you, you don't get into the pastorate to make money. You don't get into it for the, the accolades, right? Yep. You get into it because you want to see people come to know Jesus. Totally. You want to see the kingdom move forward. Uh, and if we could start living some of this out, I do think that the church plays such an enormous role in uh, in pro- providing hope for the world and the 100%. community. So. Um, these are ch- these are challenging for myself. Like, yeah. oh, am I spending time at home? What am I doing with this? What am I doing with this? Uh, I think it's also challenging for those of you out there who are parts of churches just to evaluate your own church alongside some of these. Don't evaluate it necessarily by are we growing ex- exponentially in numbers and budgets. Those are all important. But how about the character of the church? Yes. How about the character of the leaders? Those are important to look at. That's good. Well, my name is Brian Fromm, along with Ian Simpkins. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, uh, along with Ian Simpkins. You can follow us at Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show, or online at 1160hope.com. You can also download podcasts of The Common Good wherever it is that you get your podcast. Well, Ian, recently uh, a megachurch pastor by the name of Miles McPherson out of San Diego. Uh, he is the pastor of a church called Rock Church. Um, he, he wrote a book. He's an African-American pastor who wrote a book about the racial divides in our country mm. uh, and and how the church can be at the forefront uh, of breaking that down. And so I think when you and I heard about this book, we were both like, wow, that's interesting. Because yeah. unfortunately right now, the church seems to be lagging behind culture yeah. uh, in some ways. Uh, and he says this, he, he says he wants to remind believers that if you're a person of faith, you already believe in a loving God who didn't create racial divides. So he says, the God we follow is not a God of racial divides. And that's where he gets into there kind of being one race, the human race, which, you know, I think I want to push back a little bit against because, you know, I don't believe God's colorblind. I think that he created black and white uh, different races, but he he values all of them the same and wants us to do likewise. Um, but as you've interacted with this book and your own thoughts How do you believe, or how does this book say the church uh, and followers of Jesus can kind of be more ahead of the curve and at the forefront of kind of healing a lot of the racial divides that, quite frankly, are tearing this country apart? Yeah, I think think it was Tony Evans who said years ago, you know, we've made some progress in this area, but Sundays from 11 to noon are still the most segregated hour of the week. Yep. And uh, that's always kind of really resonated with me. I I totally agree with you. I don't think God is colorblind. Not only do I think he values different races, uh, I think he celebrates them. And I think when we say, I don't see race, is as if to say, I don't celebrate the history and uh, legacy of where you come from. And I think God absolutely, I I mean, they're like the most overlooked part of the Bible, but even genealogies in scripture seem to celebrate that. Like, man, um, where people come from matters to God. 
And uh, not to mention, you know, there's a number of shapes and sizes that we see throughout the pages of Scripture. So I, I don't know. It, it, it really does break my heart a lot how much the Bible has been used, particularly in the last 150 years, um, probably much more than that, to be honest, to you, you know, used as a, a tool to oppress people. But yeah. I, I think what he said here uh, is brilliant. He said the greatest commandment is to love God with your heart, mind, soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Emphasizing the word neighbor, though. If I relabel you as something less than neighbor, I don't need to love you as myself. So I have to start with you are my neighbor, mm-hmm. right? So I think of like the uh, pretty well-known um, parable of the Good Samaritan where <laughs> this expert in the law is trying to corner Jesus and um, he kind of asks him, well, who is my neighbor then? Who do I need to love? And then he kind of shares this story about a Samaritan, the most hated people group of the Jews or um, among the most hated people group, and makes him the hero of the story. So like, in some ways, you could almost summarize that interaction of this expert in the law saying, okay, well then who do I really have to love? And Jesus responds, well, who do you hate? Hmm. Right? He asks, who's, who's my neighbor? And Jesus says, who, who are you afraid of? Yeah. Who, who do you uh, diminish? Like that, he seems to kind of go right after that in a pretty explicit way. And I think his his call here, McPherson's call to, to see everybody first as my neighbor, which is a different way of saying what we've been saying, seeing everybody as an image bearer, yeah. as someone who has like divinely given and ordained sacred value, worth, and dignity. And when we fail to recognize that first, it may not even be racism, but so often it's that person who always posts online uh, an opinion that we disagree with, yes. and they become, oh, it's just that conservative friend, or it's just that liberal friend, or yep. it's just that fill in your own blank. Yep. I think as soon as we reduce somebody to political party, politi- political affiliation, the thing that we don't like about them uh, we're likely doing the same thing that I think he's rallying against. Yeah, so much of our country, uh, increasingly so, is what divides us, right? Republican right. and Democrat, black and white, rich and poor, whatever else it might be. And unfortunately, that goes on. I don't know about your your Facebook feeds, but like my Christian friends are just as bad at that uh, as my non-Christian friends. And yeah. I like McPherson's call here is like, no, the call on you is to love your neighbor as yourself, as you said. And that neighbor encompasses everybody uh, and, and you took it even more to say, to remind us, Jesus said, who are the people that are not like you? Who right. are the people you hate? Right. Who are the people you look down upon? Right. And, and McPherson's kind of takeaway is so simple, but it's really profound in some way. He says, I would challenge people to talk to people not like them. Yeah. And it raises that first question, like, how many people do I know who aren't like me? Yep. Like, no, like not, not know of, or, you know, they're my church, I rub but how many people do I actually spend time with and know who are of different race, of different, uh, you know, uh, socioeconomics, who are even of different religion. Right. Um, that is where the rubber kind of meets the road here, because I know in my own life, it becomes really easy to get segregated, right? My church is in the suburbs. It's mostly, uh, a lot of us look the same within our church. And so it becomes easy to spend people, spend time solely with people who look like me, believe what I believe, have the general same lifestyle that I believe, and so and so. And McPherson says, here's your takeaway. Start to talk to people not like you. And and I think he's kind of saying, and you're going to, parenthetically, you're going to really enjoy what you find. Right. You're really going to enjoy it. Well, I think it's important, too, that um, I think you identified the difficulty of hanging out with people who look differently than us often has to do with our geography, yep. our upbringing. Those aren't excuses. Those are realities. Yep. And I think maybe even a step easier than that if you need a pre-step is to read books from people who look it's really good think and act differently than you i I mean that's been really convicting when i look at my bookshelf and i really think about it 
How many like white straight authors are on that bookshelf? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot. I'm just going to say it. Like yep. it's and and I think um, there's nothing wrong sure. at all with that. But to say okay, so if if I need to really if I need to ask God to open my eyes to more and more see everybody as a brother or sister to love them as my neighbor if that if that's what he boiled down as the two most important things to do but i'm only ever like consuming uh work and literature and art from a very narrow slice of that yes. well then there are some things even though i live in naperville even though you know what i mean like i can start making steps towards um doing a better job of at least entering into the narrative of the story and it's not you know films don't do it perfectly novels don't do it perfectly autobiographies don't do them perfectly, but it's at least a start to say, wow, there, there's people um, closer to me in geography than I might guess yeah. whose lives look very, very differently than mine, yeah. who experience being pulled over by the police differently than I do, who experience walking into a gas station differently than I do. And and I, I can know that in a cerebral sense, but until I start actually entering into the story, like can we really truly love people mm. without also entering into their story a little yeah. bit? Like yeah. I think it's – I don't know everything there is to know about loving your neighbor by any stretch, but I do think it starts by actually knowing something about them. Yes, <laughs> knowing about your neighbor. Yes, right. Yes. It's, and it's, I think sometimes we reduce love to simply the love of a demographic, the love yeah. of a statistic. And I think love is way more enigmatic than that. And it, it takes work. It means probably sometimes saying no to certain things because this is a value, because I believe it's important to Jesus yeah. and I believe that he calls us to it and uh, and it takes steps accordingly. And McPherson uh, he ends his thing this way. He basically says, we, we often want to fix other people. Like, this person should do this. This group of people needs to do this. We, we point our fingers. He just says, I can't fix you. I need to fix myself. Mm. That really what he's saying is look at your own life and make the little changes you need to do. Read more broadly, like you said. Get to know your neighbor. If he, And think about that. If all of us were taking small steps to grow, yeah. uh, then it's going to kind of birth out a new movement that I think we're called to. That's right. Well, coming up next, we're going to talk about church. We're going to talk about babies and are Sundays good for babies? That's what's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Friday afternoon alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. Uh, you can follow us at on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Online also at 1160hope.com. There you can find uh, old shows and the like. One more hour, man. Let's drive them home here on a Friday. You and I are both past. You like that we're driving them home, man? We're taking we're dri- them No, I don't. We land planes. We drive home. We, we, we need to have a talk about your vocabulary. We're going to drive them home. A lot of them have to do with like <laughs> vehicles of some kind. Us driving planes, vehicles. cars. <laughs> I might be in a rut, people. I might be in a rut. 
That's funny. When you and I are both pastors, we've talked about that often. I'm the lead pastor at Four Corners Community Church in Darien, Illinois, and you are the teaching pastor at Community Christian Church uh, in Naperville. And one of the things, but I know both of our churches have a lot of kids in them. They're, mm-hmm. they're pretty young. And, and we came across this article at the Gospel Coalition, and it was just titled, Are Sundays Good for Babies? And you and I, I think both were like, huh, this would be interesting as pastors for you as a parent with babies. Uh, is it good uh, when you have babies, right, nap schedules and snack schedules, and you get into all these routines, and church is not very convenient to that often. Yep. And it raises this question, is it even good for parents to bring their babies and their young kids to church? How do you, how do you, uh, uh, how do you navigate that when your kid is crying all the time? Uh, what is even the value of having a baby in church? So I, I will defer to you as the one who's got <laughs> babies right now, and it's, I should probably be talking to your wife because you're probably at church early and you've got to do what you've got to do. But um, what are your thoughts about babies or little kids in church? Well, I will say uh, on the record first that what I'm about to say has been my position well before I had kids. Good. So like what I'm about to say will maybe sound self-serving because I have two very young children. Um, but at my last church – there were a number of ways that we would regularly articulate from the stage, uh, your fussy baby is not a disruption. This is what the family like looks you'd like. Say it. I would outright say it. Wow. Uh, and that began, you know, and I come from a large family, so I already feel kind of passionate about this anyway. And we had, you know, at that church, we also had a great kids' ministry and a great nursery. So that isn't to say there wasn't places for them to go. Yep, yep. Um, but every once in a while, and this is maybe every church in some capacity, there can be some sort of like subtle shaming of the mom that's just like trying her best to yes. get this kid to be quiet. And yes. then, and you know, I, I think I saw that a couple of times and I maybe heard somebody outright say something to someone else. And I said, no, never again. No, no one will ever feel shamed or castigated uh, at our church for, for, for doing what they did, which we know anyone who's a parent to even get there at all <laughs> is a huge undertaking. Mm-hmm. So to, so to be dealing with a kid who's, you know, we know this babies are, it's a total crapshoot. You don't know how they're going to behave or when they're going to explode or what's going to happen. So it's like uh, we would, and I, and it wasn't just like a, a moment of announcements. We actually would, I, I created a number of things teaching about what it means to be the family of God. And, and in a lot of ways would actually talk to some of the points that this article in the Gospel Coalition talks about. Like the family, it's messy. Mm. And part of what uh, the gathering on Sunday does for us is reminds us that even amidst our calendars and our schedules and our alarms and all the things that we think we have in order, God's still bigger than all of that. And we need to be open and willing to say, yep, sometimes the mess isn't just acceptable. It's exactly what we need. Yes. I really like that you did that from the front because often at our church, uh, if someone's got a fussy baby or I know they got called out, I will make sure to talk to them afterwards and just be like, listen, oh, that's good. that was totally fine. Not did not bother me at all. Right. You know, they're always it. really like, ah, did I? Oh, right. Totally. Uh, and then I always tell them the story. I had three. I have three children, as I've told you before. Um, they're a little older now. The youngest one being in fourth grade. Uh, all three of them uh, were fussy babies. They mm. all were to the point that our oldest daughter, our oldest child, when my wife and I were young and she was, you know, the, our baby who's now in high school was like a year old. Uh, we got our, our church that we used to go to. It had like the deli, you know, where the number would flash and come right. up and you had the number and you knew they were calling for you. Seven weeks in a row, we got called out for my daughter. No <laughs> Seven kidding. weeks in a row. And so I, but now I'm able to tell that story to people. <laughs> right, I'm right. I'll say, listen, I totally get it. I've been we got there. called out seven weeks in a row, including totally. Easter, totally. and it'll pass. Yep. It'll pass. But we love that you're here. And so my wife and I can speak a little bit from 
from his, from our own perspective because we kept coming. That's right. And there was value. That's we good. knew like this wasn't forever, but it's important for us to be involved in the family. Uh, and it was more than I had to be there because it was my job, but she wanted to be there. That's awesome. Uh, and, and there's something, you know, Jesus says, bring the children to me. There's something par- uh, powerful, but also I think it's a great picture for the church overall of just the messiness of all this is. We're not trying to make a... This isn't a Broadway play, right? right? This isn't the movie theater, right? We're we're like we're a family, and it's it's going to be crazy sometimes. Totally. And the church isn't a museum, right? I think we yes. need to remember that. And every obviously every family functions differently, you know. So when we use the analogy of family, people are conjuring up an endless list of yeah. analogies and metaphors. So I, I get that, like you know, my my family with nine people at times was probably more chaotic than a family of two or three. Yes. Like I, yes. I I do certainly understand that, and it's not like we're going around. You know, try trying to rile babies up <laughs> to make <laughs> you know, a point to make it like, oh, it's about the messiness. But I think there is a real beautiful, sacred, subtle reminder, though, that when things don't go our way, particularly in the context of a gathered worship service, like, oh, that's right. We spend a lot of time writing a sermon, planning the music, making yeah. sure the liturgy is whatever, whatever that language looks like for you. I, I think all of that's great. We've committed our lives to that. Yeah. I love I love, love, love gathering on Sundays. I yep. never knew I could love doing something as much as I love being a pastor. However, I do also know that both in my life and ministry, which really in reality are the same thing, uh, it is the curveballs. It's those messy moments, the unforeseen circumstances that have taught me the most, that yeah. have grown me the most, that have certainly challenged me the most. And I think when it comes to reminding people that, man, this is part of what it means to be a family, that we're in this together. And maybe rather than flashing a cold stare at the mom that's trying her best, what if we what if we got out of our seats? Yep. Said, hey, is there any, anything I can do to help you? Yep. Like, do you need a hand right now? You just see, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not I'm not saying that's always the best call. Maybe it's even just honestly encouraging the mom whose kids having a meltdown saying, You're doing a great job. Yep. Like I, I just want to affirm you. She it might be it might have been a long time since that mom or dad has even heard of that. Just hey, I just want you to know you're doing a great job. Yep. I, I think I think you're really killing it as a parent. And I think, oh, how life giving would that be yep. rather than this like real strange kind of shaming for a kid being a kid, yep, you know? Yep. And to the mom and dad out there who are like, it's just too much work to get out of the house. I would say this, uh, a, you know, you don't need to be a slave to nap schedules and all that kind of stuff, but B, and I'm not saying that as like the pastor, I'm saying that as a dad who's had him. Right. Um, but I would also say that in a weird way, I do believe even from a very, very early age, there is a power to the child being part of the community getting used to the community, getting used to the rhythm, getting to know the people. Like, does a baby really know what's going on? Probably not, but they're going to get comfortable in this place like babies do and get used to this is what we do. Uh, and then pretty soon uh, they get older and they, they know that this is part of the rhythm of our family life. That's right. Uh, yeah, so it's uh, to the church, to the church people out there, please don't shame those moms and dads out there who have the crying baby. Don't be like, oh, get out of here. You know, you're, you're messing with me. This Love on him. I love how you said go up, go up alongside him and just be like, hey, you're doing a good job. I think you'd be surprised how encouraging that that would be as someone with two little ones. Yep, yep. <laughs> and again, you, I mean, you mentioned it. You know, I'm usually at the church way earlier, but, you know, that the encouragement to the people that are honestly trying their best and the reminder that it isn't just being tolerated, that we celebrate the messiness of what it means to be a family. Yeah. Church is messy, huh? Right. Sometimes that's hard, but I really enjoy that. Like you said, it's fun being a pastor because it's messy. Well, speaking of being a pastor, coming up next, we're going to tackle this article that says this, the struggle is real, passive and pushy pastors. I don't think we're either of those, but we're going to find out. (laughs) That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. 
Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, alongside Ian Simpkins. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show, or online at 1160hope.com. Well, Ian and I are both pastors. We say that over and over again. That's one of the things, uh, I think that's why they put us together on this show, right? They wanted to have two pastors locally just kind of talking about life. And... No, I think they just wanted us to fight. I think that's, I think that's what it came down to. <laughs> We're getting there today. We're getting there. <laughs> uh, you know, to talk pastorally about whether issues of the day or different things. So one of the things we want to help people do is to understand how pastors are, are a lot like this always sounds weird to say, but pastors are like regular people. <laughs> They're not actual regular people. They're, They're like, like regular, regular people, people, but also different. <laughs> like our jobs are just different. Our callings are yeah. – uh, the, the expectations are also different in the pastorate. And so uh, sometimes like, – I think you've often said it really well – is that being a pastor can be really lonely mm-hmm. because people kind of treat you differently, right? They either put you on a pedestal like – uh, you're holy and this and that, and you've got this special life, you know, lifeline to God, and you want to look at them and be like, "No, I'm just like you." Right. Or they just kind of look down on you, like, "What did you? What are you doing with your life? What you work one day a week? Yeah. And right, right, right. You like just kind of go out to coffee with people? Like, what do you do? And you take your sermons <laughs> off the internet? What's going on here? And so, oh, did I did I share too much? <laughs> Ooh, uh, did I share too much? So, uh, I think you and I would do want to help people understand, like, just from the heart of pastors, like. What? Who are we? Like, what is what is a pastor, and what do we want people to know about us? <sighs> That's a complicated question. I think pastors are as complex as people are. So, yeah. to make any statement like pastors are blank, correct, uh, is sort of craziness because they're as diverse as any profession, any people group. I think there certainly, um, in my limited experience often can be a trend of the types of people that are drawn to ministry, but but even those are, are broad strokes that aren't always helpful. I yeah. just think um, one of the things that I had a mentor help me understand better early on, thankfully, was you know I, I grew up um, in a pretty blue-collar area doing a lot of blue-collar work, so that meant like, you know, like lifting and working in the sun, and at the end of the day, you were uh, exhausted for like really obvious reasons. Mm-hmm. And then when I started preaching, when I started working in churches— at the end of services on Sunday, I would I would feel totally exhausted, but wouldn't feel justified in my exhaustion. Oh wow! I was like, wait, you gave a couple of talks in an air conditioned room in the suburbs? Like, what's wrong with you? Like, stop being such a pansy! Like, I legitimately wrestled with that uh, just because of my you know my ideas of what exhaustion looked like, and yep. it was just this really wise mentor who was like, you know, there's such a thing as like emotional exhaustion mm-hmm. and spiritual exhaustion, and kind of into that he, he you know he parlayed conversation about um paying better attention to the stuff that weighs on us you know and that's like a that's a um that's a 24 7 kind of situation yep. it doesn't have to just be when i'm sitting at a laptop or when i'm in a meeting room there is this uh kind of low-grade hum sometimes of stuff that is weighing on us as pastors if if you uh, i think are like shepherding and leading well you're also going to like carry some of the burdens of the stories that you hear that doesn't mean that we don't celebrate um, you know, the wins and the victories, that stuff's amazing. Yes. But I, I've, it's really only been the last few years that I've become more attuned to how much some of those heartbreaking stories like stay with me um, well after the conversation has ended and like yeah. paying attention to just how that stuff affects me and what, what I do and don't bring um, back home into my marriage and my parenting. Um, that, that can certainly get a little messy. Yeah. And I think this is such an important conversation to have for people who are in churches because 
we've seen a lot of pastors fall recently, and people are like, how did that happen? And then you hear about their lives, and you're like, well, oh, yeah. purely, clearly people weren't in their lives, and there right. wasn't accountability, and there wasn't this. One of the things I'm super thankful for in my upbringing in my life, we've always been a part of a church, but my best friend's dad was our pastor. Mm. Uh, and so I got a really kind of front row, without being a pastor's kid, I got a really front row um, seat to watching a pastor in day-to-day life. Like sometimes interesting. I remember having the realization like, oh, you know, he's just a, a regular guy. Like he's a dad. He yells at his son, right. who's my best friend, and he yells <laughs> right. at me when I'm over there sometimes. And, you know, sometimes he's like kind of tired and sometimes he's this, but then on Sunday he does a good job preaching. And I think the I think one reason I am a pastor or was willing to kind of go down that road is because kind of the uh, the the mysticism of it or whatever was taken away by mm. watching his life mm. and just kind of going, okay, well, no, no, that's a normal family. Like they just kind of do things the same way my family does. He coached my little league team and he does this. And um, so it was very interesting. And, and that's why I think I feel passionately. Like I want people in my church to say to me like, oh yeah, I kind of know you, like I can know you. And there's always a weird distance, but um, I just think pastors are people. <laughs> and yeah. That sounds like such a weird thing to say, <laughs> especially as a pastor. But I think people out there get that, that right. they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, maybe they are. It's it's just this. It's it's really a weird job, man. <laughs> yeah, that's the big takeaway. This is it a weird is. job. I remember it is. Was a couple years ago, uh, I was in the lobby with my wife, and someone ran up to us, and I really think she meant well. But she greeted us. <laughs> I love us. questions. Of, I love stories that begin with they meant well. She she greeted us, and then she turned to my wife and said, oh, my word, what must it be like to be married to such a holy man? <laughs> and I was like, let Did me go ahead and jump in here. Uh, <laughs> my wife is 10 times holier than I am, first off. That is awesome. But it was, and she, I, she wasn't being um, facetious. Yep. or snar- It was legitimately like, oh, my goodness, you're... You're married to a man of the cloth. What yep. must that be? Does he just float everywhere? And does you know? Uh, thankfully, um, we're both able to laugh about that, you know, and and hopefully not just laugh about that in the moment, but to spend time actively, whether it's from the pulpit or in conversations, um, not in a way like glorifying faults either. That's sometimes the other side of this. I think pastors yeah. can try way too hard to be like, see, I'm just like you. This and is like, where I struggle. I think that's my struggle in this. Really, I want. I've told you before, I don't want people to call me pastor. Right. Like, I, I want you. I'm like, no, my name's Brian. Like, it's just this. And some people, they just want to call you pastor. And, and I, sometimes that has less to do with you yes. and more like they want to show you honor. And yes. I don't think there's anything wrong. It's like, um, you know, when I see kids call uh, sir and ma'am, I'm like, all right, yeah, right on. I yeah. don't think every kid needs to do that. But, like, per my upbringing, I think that's an okay way to to conduct yourselves. And yep. I think it's right. It, it, we, de- we need to actively make sure that we're standing against the stream of culture that, or, or church culture in particular, that wants to put us on a pedestal, yep. but also be mindful of when we're tr- just trying too hard. Mm. Like it's okay, Pastor, to sometimes say, "Man, I really loved my Bible reading this morning." Yep. You know, and just deal with the eye rolls. Like, oh, here goes the pastor talking goes. about the Bible. <laughs> no, I, I gotta be honest. Like that, today was just a really good day, or like yeah. I had a great weekend away with my wife. Like it's okay to also say. Yeah, I love what I do. I love mm. my church community. And sometimes you feel like a message just lands or God reveals something in his word or in your community. And I feel like sometimes in this like hyper obsession with like being hip or relatable, yeah. sometimes we can go far the other side. Like, CCC, we're totally normal. Look at all the awful things we do, too. <laughs> You're like, I don't know that that's necessarily helpful. Why is my pastor out smoking between yeah. messages out there? <laughs> 
<laughs> which true. I would honestly be okay with personally. It'd be a little strange, though. But right, yeah, it would be a little strange. Maybe in the suburban context that yeah. we live in, but I think in in plenty of environments that'd be normal. I'm just saying. I get what you're saying. It's yeah. okay to just actually be yourself. You were talking your story about your wife. It made me think of this. Have you ever preached a? I, I remember. When I preached much less frequently, you know, as a youth pastor, I'd get to preach two times a year, three times a year. We're kind of all on that trajectory. And my wife was always super supportive. She would listen. I would practice on her. I would, like, talk to the (laughs) message. She'd just know it. You know, this. I remember the first time in, we're like five, six, seven sermons in, and uh, the first time I ever preached where her and I got in a fight in the morning. Oh gosh, yeah. Do you remember? Have you I, ever done that? Like, you sure like, try not to look at your wife while you're preaching, <laughs> and it's this really weird thing. But it made me think of when the lady said to you, "Like, how is it?" To, you're like, "No, no, I've lived life. Like, I fought with my wife this morning, right on the way She's here. She's mad at me, <laughs> and now I'm doing that. Yes, so. totally. Yeah, pastors are people. How's that sound for the takeaway? <laughs> I'm okay Such with a that. weird job. <laughs> it's true. It is true. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Jeff Johnston from Focus on the Family. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. My name is Brian Fromm, as always, joined by Ian Simpkins. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com. The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. Uh, or online at 1160hope.com. Ian, every Friday we are joined uh, by people from Focus on the Family. They're one of the great partners we have here uh, on AM 1160. In fact, Focus on the Family with Jim Daly can be heard every weekday from 1130 to noon right here on AM 1160. And today we're joined by Jeff Johnston. Jeff is an issues analyst at Focus on the Family, and he frequently writes and speaks on issues related to gender and healthy sexuality. So, uh, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Brian. Hi, Ian. Um, Happy to be here with you guys. Great. Well, thank you very much. One of the things we're excited to talk to you about is usually the guys come on from Focus on the Family or the girls come on from Focus on the Family, uh, and we talk about issues and we talk about this or that, but you actually... Uh, your son, you've got a story of your son who was wrestling out in Colorado um, and kind of put all these things that you study and write about into into practice. So why don't you uh, catch us up and tell us the story of what happened with your son? Sure. Um, yeah, I write about issues related to sexuality and gender for Focus on the Family, and it um, hit home with my family big time this year um, when my son, who's a, a senior, um, and he's got a twin brother that's a senior also. They wrestle at 106 and 113. And in uh, Brendan's division, he wrestles at 106. There happened to be um, two girls in the state bracket. He had qualified to go to the state tournament. Um, they take you know the top 16 kids from the state in his division. And he was seated pretty high. He was seated fourth in the state. And um, he has chosen in his wrestling career that he won't wrestle girls. He um, in his words, he doesn't want to use his strength and uh, aggression mm. to um, tackle and wrestle a girl on the mat. He's just not going to do that. He's not willing to do that. And so this year, um, there were two girls in the bracket, and he forfeited to both of them, which knocked him out of the tournament. Wow. So that's this is a fascinating story, I imagine, with a lot of layers, a lot of twists and turns. And uh if if you could see me, it'd be really obvious that I'm not a wrestler. So you, would, you would not be surprised by my ignorance at all. Maybe but, at 106. Maybe yeah, you could do that. Yeah, yeah, barely. Uh, 
But so, okay, so can you walk us through some of the specifics then? Because uh, it sounds like these these two girls qualified, and I guess I don't really understand um, how the qualifying process works. And are there other people who are making similar decisions to your son? And like, what are the what what are some of the layers to how all of that works? Can you can you unpack that for us? Yeah, well, in in Colorado, um, wrestling has always been a boys' sport, um, but because of Title IX and changes in the culture. Um, for years now, they've let girls who want to wrestle, wrestle in the boys' division. Now, um, they are starting a pilot program for girls' wrestling, and in 2020, it should be an officially sanctioned high school sport, but this year, it was still in the pilot stage, and they had their state tournament a couple weeks before the boys' state tournament. Well, some of the girls decide that they want to wrestle against the boys, because it's tougher competition. Mm. And, um, what they do is they divide the state into different regions and different size schools. And so we're a 3A school, and um, they have a regional tournament, and the top four from each region go to the state tournament. So it's kind of a big deal to even get to qualify and go to the tournament. Um, both Brendan and Aiden qualified last year, and they qualified again this year. And two girls, uh, one of them won her division. I think the other one took third in her division. Um, in her region, they made it to the state tournament as well. And just, it was the way the brackets were set up. They were bracketed of 16 kids and Brendan um, forfeited to a girl in the first round. Then he won his next two matches. And then he forfeited to a girl in the, the fourth round and that knocked him out of the tournament. I'm curious what the coaches thought about this. Were they supportive or were they upset because that this also hurts the team? So what, what, what was the response of uh, your son's coaches to this decision? Well, Brendan has a wonderful coach awesome. um, and, and several wonderful coaches. We, we've worked with these guys for years and we love them. And I am so grateful for the way they've poured into um, my son's lives, um, both my older son and then my, my twins who have been wrestling for six years now. Mm. Um, you know, they've mentored them about healthy ma- masculinity and, and, and sportsmanship and being a good team player. And our coach, obviously the school can't have a, you know, make a decision for the kid. And we, we as the parents let Brendan make the decision. The coach did the same thing. They talked it over. They spent a lot of time talking about how this would play out. And, you know, was there a route to the podium, even with the girls in the bracket and what could happen? And so the coach knew ahead of time what Brendan's stance was on this. And, and he was good with it. He um, left it up to Brendan to make that decision. Um, we, we go to a public school, the, the mm-hmm. kids go to a public charter school, but there are a lot of Christians there too. And, um, they have a re- wrestler's Bible study and they've been friends with other kids on the team, you know, since they were in first grade, some of them. Um, and it's just a really wonderful group of supportive guys who love wrestling and love each other and love the Lord. So it's been a great group and a great experience for the kids too. Okay, so Jeff, Brian and I are both pastors, and uh, for better or for worse, I think we're probably always thinking in terms of like sermon illustrations and applications and takeaways. And so this this story is a story personal to you, um, but there's obviously also implications, and this is particularly in line with your field. Um, can you just speak pastorally a little bit to what what's what what should someone take away, or from from your perspective, where you sit? What's some things that we can learn from the story? Um, things we can wrestle with, maybe stuff we could read or engage with. How, how would you kind of challenge listeners in light of this story uh, to think about some of these things? Well, I think we all know that there's a lot of confusion in our culture um, about 
sex. And by sex, I'm not talking about activity. I'm talking about being male or female. Um, we've had this explosion of gender ideology that says, you know, that people can switch sex, sexes and, and, and turn from a man into a woman, or that there might be, uh, instead of male and female, there might be a multitude of genders. Um, and we've raised the kids um, with the biblical belief, and actually what's biologically true, that um, God made us male and female in his image, and that both of those are good, but they're different. They're not interchangeable, and they're not identical. And we, and we started talking to the kids about that early on. You know, wh- what is healthy masculinity, mm. and what does it look like, and how does that play out in a man's life, and what is healthy femininity, and um, how does that play out in a woman's life? And sadly, um, you know, because of sin, um, there's just been conflict between the two sexes for forever, you know, since since the garden. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the reporters that talked to Brennan about this, it's been interesting how much press coverage this has gotten, but one of the reporters said, um, he used the phrase that Brendan chose to lay down his sword and walk away. And I really like that because it's like there's this sword, this conflict between the two sexes. Mm. And Brendan said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to respect um, this this young lady. She's worked hard. But I'm also going to respect the truth that there are male and female differences and that that's a good thing. And we can celebrate those without having to comp- compete against each other all the time. Is that, is that enough of a sermon lesson for you? There you go. Yes, We're writing it down. We're writing it down. <laughs> Well, Jeff, <laughs> Jeff, we really appreciate uh, you just not sharing your thoughts on this, but sharing, uh, opening up about your family story. Uh, we really appreciate it, and uh, please pass on to your son that that we uh, also appreciate uh, all that he has done as well. So thank you for joining us today. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the broadcast. Absolutely. Thanks, absolutely. Jeff. And as a reminder, Focus on the Family with Jim Daly can be heard every weekday from 1130 to noon right here on AM 1160, uh, Hope for your life. Coming up next on The Common Good, we're going to end this show. We're going to end the week with just some craziness that we have found on the internet. That's what's coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com at The Common Good Radio Show or online at 1160hope.com. One more segment, man, and it's the weekend. <laughs> the home stretch, you man. Land the plane. Bring oh, the boat gosh. in. Here we go. I thought we were going to get away with it. Nope. Nope. Uh, so this is uh, every pastor's, as you told us, every pastor's favorite segment where we give them sermon fodder. I don't think I said that. I think I said it. One oh, of us okay. said it. So uh, we like to end every show uh, with just crazy stories from the internet. And as you and I were just discussing, uh, the internet always wins. It never disappoints us. Maybe a better way to say is we always lose. <laughs> or the humanity's in trouble. Yeah, no humanity's kidding. in trouble. So I'm gonna start uh I'm gonna start right here in Germany. Let's start in Germany. Firefighters rescue, quote, very fat rat stuck in a manhole cover. <laughs> Firefighters in Germany are getting praise from oh animal lovers around the world after a life saved. That of a very fat rat. <laughs> animal rescuer called the local volunteer fire department for backup. Oh if you you all need to uh you all need to Google this because it is the best. This thing is just pleading for help, and instead of killing it, I, they they got it out. So that's happy. This is this is some highbrow programming. Right that now, is. That is. Start. Okay. Well, it wouldn't be uh, this segment without going to Florida. Here we go. 
Police promised man slice of pizza to end hours-long standoff. Authorities oh. say a Florida man accused of threatening his family ended a four-hour stand- four standoff with police after he was promised a slice of pizza, which, I mean, <laughs> I like pizza as much as the next guy. I do, too. That, how uncommitted to the standoff must you be? Like, all right, like not even a whole pizza, just a, you can a see, slice. You can see the police are outside. Like, you're picturing those movies where they're lined up and they're like, what do you think he wants? Are we talking like like a helicopter to Cuba million? or something? Yeah, and he's like, uh, I'd like a slice <laughs> with pepperoni, please. Just go for a pepperoni <laughs> pie. That's all it took, man. Well, I'm you're going to see a theme on mine here so far. Okay, so we're in England. We always go to England for these, or at least read from England. Escape hatches on submarines to be made bigger due to Royal Navy sailors getting fatter. Oh boy! Escape hatches on submarines may have to be made bigger because of the obesity epidemic spreading to the military. A consultant surgeon has warned. The problem of overweight service personnel was highlighted, and now they're having to start to build their submarines with bigger hatches, bigger escape hatches, because like the rat in the manhole cover in Germany, they were getting stuck. Oh. I, that surprises me because you think in the military, maybe not in England, but they're pretty physically fit and this and that. <laughs> Why not in England? Apparently, oh, not saying in America. I don't think this would happen, <laughs> but in England, it seems like a problem. I'm guessing the submarines aren't able to go very quickly either. It's kinda, you're picturing them just more of a lurch they're than just, a- <laughs> they're just on the bottom. Everyone's pushing. Like, come on. It's more like a like a Flintstones rock, yabba dabba do situation. <laughs> yes. All right, California. This one's kind of a feel good. Also, sort of one of my nightmares. Snowplow hits totally buried car, finds woman inside. <laughs> Snow is piled up so high in South Lake Tahoe that even sitting in a parked car can be dangerous. During a recent storm, a snowplow operator inadvertently hit a completely buried car that was illegally parked on a city easement. The impact popped open the trunk of the vehicle. City spokeswoman said. Uh, as workers dug uh, to, around the car to prepare for a towing, they were startled to see a hand press against one of the windows. It belonged to a 48-year-old woman no who had been inside way. for four to five hours. She was unharmed, and she was fine, but may not have actually survived if they had not found that. So that's like two huge surprises. One, oh my gosh, there's a car here. They start you know, digging out to tow it to the, to the impound, and they find a woman inside. That, that's crazy. That's going to be terrifying for all parties involved. Yes. That's wild. That's no, thank crazy. You. No, thank you. Uh, California. And this one I bring up because we've all been told this, but I never knew that they actually did this. Firefighters run hose through a legally parked vehicle. Hmm. A California driver got an important reminder about not parking next to hydrants when firefighters had to shatter two of their windows. The Anaheim Fire Department tweeted photos of a car after firefighters had to break both of its rear windows to run a hose through the vehicle to reach the hydrant. They wrote, ever wonder what happens when a car is parked in front of a fire hydrant and a fire breaks out? Is a closer parking spot worth the broken windows and the citation and the towing fees? They literally, if you say the picture, they went right through the car. No kidding. You always hear that. Like, if you do that and there's a fire, they're going to do it. But right. there you go. There is there is visual proof there's of proof. it. There's proof. And if it's on the internet, it must be true. There All you right. go. Here's Florida again. Uh, Bill proposes dog petting while driving be made illegal in Florida. So I guess I'm never moving to Florida. A new proposal in Florida law could make it illegal to pet your dog while driving. In a uh, AAA survey, 52% of people said they have pet their dog while driving, and 29% admitted they were distracted by their animal, which I guess is not all that surprising, but yeah. apparently petting them while driving is enough of a distraction and they're just going to ban it petting entirely. Them, texting while doing it, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> That's a good point. North Carolina, this is where I'm the old guy who's like, what's wrong with our culture? North Carolina lawmakers consider bill that would change the grading scale. 
The North Carolina General Assembly announced this week that they're considering a bill that would adjust the grading scale used to grade state public schools. The proposed bill promotes a 15-point grading scale. Hmm. Here's what it would mean. Now to get an A in school, it's from 100% down to 85%. 84 to 70% is a B. 69 to 55% is a C. 54 to 40% is a D. And anything below 40% would be failing. I mean, that's a good thing about uh, me. I just fail anyway, regardless of any system. <laughs> I just now can go lower. But yeah, right, right. No kidding. That, that does sound like the old guy. Like, what's wrong with our kids? When I was a kid, I had to get in the 90s for an A. <laughs> nope. I don't. I mean, being homeschooled, I don't even know that we got grades like that necessarily. Oh, that's true. I don't even that. remember how we. I think I had to call in some like telephone system, and then they told us that we were done going to school when we graduated. That's awesome. All right, this one's out of Maryland. Um, every extra pint of beer. Takes 15 minutes off your life. Oh. So strap in for this uh, pint full of bad news. The maximum <laughs> number of drinks you can have a week to be a healthy person is five total. That's about 100 grams of alcohol or five standard size glasses of wine or pints of beer. Drink more than that in a week and you run a higher risk for heart failure, stroke, and fatal aneurysms. Wow. Who knew? Not me. <laughs> California. Newlywed shocked after wedding crasher seen in video walking off with box of cards. A local couple is shocked and upset after what was supposed to be the greatest day of their life. It was a braven, brazen theft with a hundred wedding gifts around, guests around. Video captured Saturday at the hotel shows a wedding crasher in a suit pacing around the venue. He is then seen grabbing a box and walking away. The newlywed couple says that the box was filled with cash gifts that friends and family left for them. Oh, wow. That is gutsy. That is gutsy. And that's, I don't know about you guys, but when we got married, like, that that was, like, a great little nest egg. Because people who just kept leaving cash, that was the best. Yeah, I don't know that that tradition still exists, does it? Really? <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea. I hope it does. Who knows? Not that it matters to me anymore. Yeah, I was going to say, that's a good point. All right, Germany. German city seizes pug. Sells it on eBay. The city of Allen in Western Germany is facing a lawsuit from the new owner of a pug, which she bought from the city on eBay. The dog named uh, Etta was seized last year from an Allen family, which had debts to the city, including unpaid docks taxes. I don't know what that is. The family tried to settle the debts through alternate means, but the city seized the pug because of its high value and uh, thoroughbred dog, according to German broadcasters. So uh, apparently this dog was sold by the city on eBay. Huh. A quick one out of Alabama. So this guy breaks into an Alabama uh, gas station at 4 in the morning. Video finds him inside the store. Uh, he broke a window with a rock and then crawled into the store. Uh, so at that point, he's got the whole store in front of him. How much stuff do you think he walked out with? Oh, gosh. I don't even know. Authorities said the man took milk and honey buns <laughs> and then left the store. That's a good one to end on. That's a good one to end on. Hey, man, have a great weekend. It's been another good week, and I think they'll let us do it again next week. Fingers crossed, man. There you go. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. This is The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn. 
deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.